So I want to welcome each of you who are here in this room. We have special guests, family, and also those of you who are with us virtually this morning. It's uh, special for several reasons this morning. It is our last in-person chapel service of this academic year and what a year of chapels it has been. And it is, of course, a time set aside to honor the legacy of two retirees who together have between them 51 years of service here at EMS, Kenton Durstein and Lonnie Yoder. If you're joining us virtually, you can find the order of worship in the chat. If you came in and didn't pick one up, they are on um, music stands in the back. In keeping with EMU COVID protocol this morning, given the number of guests in the room, uh, when the music is up on the wall, you are invited to hum along or simply just drink in the words as our musicians play for us. And if you uh, love and miss Perry, who's been with us faithfully all year, he's out with a COVID shot follow-up. So we will begin with the call to worship and the opening song. It is on the wall. Kevin will lead the people part. I will do the leader part together. God of all creation, we enter your presence, humbly aware that all that we have and are, we owe to you. We come desiring to worship together, be our inspiration. We come desiring to learn together, be our teacher. We come eager children, desiring your comfort, be our loving parent. Open our eyes that we may see as you see. Open our hearts that we may love as you love. Open our hands that we may serve as you serve. In the name, In the name of, of Christ, Christ, our, our Lord, Lord, and, and our, our example. example. Amen.
We're going to begin our time today reflecting, remembering, and honoring Lonnie. For each of our honorees, uh, we will begin with Dean Sue Cockley offering introduction. And then in this first section, Lonnie has chosen a scripture, which will be read by his wife, Teresa. This will be followed by his reflection, which is entitled, Listen, Learn, and Love, which I notice alliterates well with Lonnie. Lonnie's reflection will be followed by a song that he has chosen for today. And then we will have uh, open mic time. Uh, Kevin will bring a mic around to those in this room. If you are on Zoom and want to unmute and share at that time, we warmly welcome that. Sadly, if you're on Facebook Live, uh, technology does not allow you to, to speak to us here. But if you have a memory, you might want to write it and put it in an email. Following the sharing, uh, Associate Dean Nancy Heisey will lead us in a prayer of blessing for Lonnie. So Sue will begin. It's very nice to be back here in this space. And I'm happy to welcome Lonnie to come and share with us today. Lonnie has been a member of the faculty at Eastern Mennonite Seminary since 1991, teaching courses in pastoral care and counseling and leadership. He was also the very first president of the faculty senate here at EMU, which I think is an excellent indication of the respect and trust that his colleagues afford him. He was a pioneer in online learning many years ago uh, with seminary courses, and I think his work in promoting the idea of online learning, helping people, helping faculty understand how to do it well, I think that really helped set us up for success when we had to quickly adjust to online learning uh, last, a year ago last spring. Lonnie is an ordained minister in MCUSA and has spent many years serving churches and consulting in the uh, local area. He and his wife, Teresa, do Healthy Boundaries training throughout the Virginia Mennonite Conference. Please join me in welcoming Lonnie. Good morning. Lonnie has chosen Romans 5, verses 1 to 5. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. And we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. Good 
most challenging thing I'll do is uh, take off my mask without losing my hearing aids. It's an extra level of, of complication. <clears throat> so, Listen, Learn, and Love, a reflection on 30 years at Eastern Mennonite Seminary and University. In the spring of 1991, 30 years ago, I was finishing my doctoral studies at the University of Iowa, and I was serving as the Mennonite representative to the Association of Campus Ministries at the university. In one of our meetings, the United Methodist campus pastor asked me, what are you going to do when you graduate? He was aware that I was graduating with my doctoral degree. I had interviewed here at Eastern Mennonite Seminary the previous October and been offered and accepted the faculty position early in, in that year. So I said to him something like this, our family is moving to Harrisonburg, Virginia, where I will begin teaching in the Mennonite Seminary. He had two responses. His first response, and I've never forgotten either response, his first response shocked me. He said, be prepared for a year of hell. Now, I could have used that as my chapel talk, but it might just be a bit too provocative. So um, I'll say a little bit more in a few minutes about what those first years were like. The second thing he said, equally important, he says, you only have one job over the next year, and that is to listen, to learn, and to love. So the, the listen, learn, love is not unique to me. It, I attribute it at least to this United Methodist campus pastor. That second kind of admonition became my North Star in my first year of teaching. And in some ways, it's still my North Star. I want to share with you uh, in the allotted time, and if I go over just a few minutes, I, I promise not to go over a lot, but I may go over a few. I want to share some broad strokes and highlights of my 30 years. After I uh, put some thoughts on paper, when I look back, I realized I didn't say anything in my comments about teaching. I thought, oh, I've got to say something about teaching. So let me, let me say that uh, teaching for 30 years has been both a joy and a grind. A joy and a grind. Um, I have so many memories uh, of the classroom and of relationships with students. So the grind, of cranking out syllabi and teaching new courses um, was actually energizing. I divide my comments into kind of three decades. Uh, the early years, 91 to 2000. What was I experiencing as I came to Harrisonburg, which by the way, when I came to interview, it was only the second time in my life I'd ever been to Harrisonburg, Virginia. It'd been 25-year interlude between my first visit and my second. So this was a brand new setting, brand new. At that time, there were three buildings. If you've been around long enough, you, you, can, you can imagine those buildings. My office was in the uh, upper level of the old administration building in a big open room. I shared office space in that big open room with Gerald Shank and Anil Solanke. And our, our offices were not secure. I remember in that first year, occasionally finding someone in my office going through my books on my shelves, I think trying to figure out who I was and what I valued. Um, so there was not a computer on my desk. Um, I did have a telephone. That was about the only technology uh, in my office at that time. 
I spent a lot of that first year observing, listening, if you will. I have a little slip of paper at home where I jotted down notes of what I was observing. I invented a word called new gen phobia, which is a fear of anything new. It's something I observed, uh, stood out to me. So in, the, in that first year, here's the hell, I taught seven courses that I had never taught before. Seven. Three in the fall semester, one in the January term, and three in the spring semester. I just lived day by day and sometimes hour by hour trying to stay ahead of the students. I was reading the textbooks that the students were reading. I was preparing them, um, you know, 75-minute lectures that I, were, I was preparing from scratch. Literally living one day at a time. In the morning, I would put daughters Shannon and Nicole, who were then six and three, uh, they're here, thank you for coming, um, on the school bus here in the parking lot, seminary parking lot, in the morning, and then pick them up off the bus at about 3.45 or something like that in the afternoon. Teresa was working at RMH in, in a role there. So that was the first year. The second year, I taught four additional new courses. Again, all new preps. So as I was finishing the second year, I said to myself, ah, year three will be a piece of cake. I will just be able to put it on autopilot and go from there. Unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at things, David Glanzer, who was starting the new Master of Arts in Counseling program, came to me and said, would you join the faculty in, in this new program? And after a time of discernment, I agreed to do that. So in year three, I taught even more new courses. By the way, I, I counted this week, and this is hard to believe, but I have a Microsoft Word document I could show you. I have taught 35 different courses uh, over the past 30 years, 35, so more than one a year. So 1993 to 98, I was half-time teaching in the seminary and half-time teaching in the counseling program. It was at the time, and I used this um, way to express what I was experiencing, a cross-cultural experience to go from this floor to the lower level. Uh, two different um, faculties, two different uh, student bodies, two different communities. I had two offices in this building, um, one on this level and one on the lower level. I wore out the stairwell on the south end of this building for that five-year um, period. It was a time of much personal growth. I developed my own counseling theory. There was a time in which we, uh, as faculty, sat together and shared our counseling theories, and I, I couldn't commit to any of the, you know, standard theories, so I developed my own. Uh, it has an acronym, NADPOC, N-A-D-P-O-C, Neo-Amish dialect, Dialectic Pilgrimage-Oriented Contextualism. I won't, I won't, um, go on from there. In that five years teaching both in the seminary and in the counseling program, particularly in the counseling program, I experienced new horizons for pedagogy. I got in touch with how much my earlier life education, if you will, but particularly my doctoral program, uh, 
had formed me into a certain way of teaching. In the counseling program, I learned the value of dialogue and engagement in the classroom as compared to the lecture. I learned the value of evaluation by means other than a test, so much so that I have not given a test in any of my classes in, in nearly two decades. I learned the value of process as well as content in learning. But near the end of that five-year period, I was truly in a place of burnout and fatigue. I knew I needed to make a decision about full-time involvement in one or, or the other of the programs. And I discovered again that my first love is with the church, with the community. I have a preference for long and messy relationships without the guidelines of the counseling office and the contractual understandings that come in a counseling relationship. So I returned to the seminary full time in 1991 and I just hung on until that first sabbatical, which was 2001-2002. Back then it was 11 years before you uh, got to the first sabbatical. There was a decision about what we would do uh, on the sabbatical. We wanted to do something as a family. Uh, one of the ways that I was not a part of the seminary faculty and community was I had never experienced life internationally. I think I was the only member on the faculty, so that was a requirement up front. Well, we ended up going to Jamaica for a year, and it was an amazing, amazing time. Um, it, it, the semester before we left for Jamaica, I taught my first uh, online course uh, and discovered I had a passion for online learning, which continues to this day. The middle years, 2001 to 2009, just three quick highlights. The year in Jamaica, I came back and my sabbatical report has this title, 43 things I learned on sabbatical. And I looked at that again uh, about a month ago and they were 43, I think, substantive learnings. I just didn't put down frivolous kinds of things. So it was a rich, rich year of learning and discovery uh, for me and for our family. And it provided incredible renewal or fuel to teach when I came back, and I lived on that fuel um, for a very long time until the next sabbatical. The second thing in those middle years that uh, stands out for me is the LEAP program, which was the Lilly uh, program where we brought promising high school age students from diverse backgrounds to campus during the summer for uh, three to five days of orientation then an international travel experience followed by a time of debriefing. I was, I was privileged to take two groups to Jamaica. The first one was a two-week stint with the Calvary Community uh, Youth Group, Hampton, Virginia. And Nicole was along on that. I only agreed to go because Nicole turned 16 during the time we were going to be gone. And I said, I will only go if, uh, if our daughter Nicole can go along. And I don't know whether you remember, Nicole, but the youth group sang happy birthday to you three ways, kind of the traditional way, and then a kind of um, African-American version of happy birthday, and there was even a C3 Calvary community version. Uh, so she experienced a very unique 16th birthday in Jamaica. So Jamaica twice, the second time Teresa went along. Um, I'm, I'm trying to remember which one we hiked to the peak of Blue Mountain was the second one, right, Teresa? Yeah, Nicole's shaking her head, yes. Um, in addition to Jamaica, I was able to accompany a group to Columbia, 
and in, in the final year of the program, a group to New Orleans post-Katrina. All fascinating experiences. In 2010, um, Michael King was, was uh, coming on as dean at the seminary, and he um, contacted me. I had never met Michael in my life. Um, and Michael contacted me, said, I would like to come to your office and um, extend an invitation to you to consider being the associate dean. Well, I prepared, and I prepared well, and I had a no for Michael. And after he extended the invitation formally, I said no and gave him my reasons. And you have to understand, this is my first meeting with Michael King, and it was just an insight into who he is. His first response when I said no was, Jesus is not happy with your no. <laughs> I, I actually think it was Michael. I don't know whether he might be listening out there, but he might have a different memory of that. But I clearly remember that he played the Jesus card. Um, so by the end of our meeting, I, had, I said yes, and I'm glad I did. Um, it was, uh, and now I come to my final years, uh, 2010 to the present, Administration was something I enjoyed immensely. Um, it had its stresses. Um, the privilege to work with Michael was, was one of the highlights of my 30 years here. We dealt, as you do in administration, with many unique challenges. I remember Michael's imagery of someone turning on a fire hose and forgetting to turn it off, and it, that was you know, blowing on you all the time. February 22nd, 2011, I woke up in the morning with my right eye swollen shut and a rash on my right temple. I was misdiagnosed initially, but after several weeks was diagnosed with shingles. I experienced six weeks of fatigue. Thankfully, my, my other symptoms were mild, but incredible fatigue. I would come and teach a class. I would walk home across the street, sleep for an hour or two, come back and teach another class. So uh, for about six weeks, that was my uh, experience. That experience led to a new normal for me. Uh, I recognized that I had no margin in my life and I needed to um, set better boundaries, and so I did. In 2016, I, I um, moved out of administration back into a half-time faculty involvement, um, moving towards retirement. I've often said I've been on a glide path to retirement and now the plane is landing. Um, in this glide path to retirement, I've been privileged to teach uh, the Formation in God's Story one and two courses in a hybrid format for three years and this year uh, completely online. Two years ago in May, I was diagnosed with chronic lymphocytic leukemia, a chronic and slow-growing blood cancer. And as I took a year to kind of adjust to that diagnosis and incorporate it into my life, <clears throat> the COVID um, pandemic arrived and created a new kind of crisis in my life because just as I was adjusting to um, the blood cancer diagnosis, I had to figure out what it meant to have that and to live with the reality of COVID. I've learned a lot about loss of control in the past year, about mortality, about loss and grief, um, but it's been a good year of learning in, in that respect. I want to conclude by uh, expressing my immense gratitude for the journey of being part of the ENU and S community for three decades. 
the journey with students, with colleagues, and supervisors. I was trying to count supervisors this morning. I had five or six. They were all good in their own way. I have very little regret. Um, I think my biggest regret is that more than once, maybe even a pattern, I tended to prioritize work over family. And, and now if I'm gifted with more years, I want to prioritize family. As I reflect on my journey, I'm struck by the power of formation, a word we use around the seminary a lot. Uh, the formation for me before I was even born and kind of the multi-generational influences, um, my formative years in Iowa, family, church, school, and community, the formative years in education, um, I was the only one in a large rural Mennonite congregation in Iowa who's, who attended the public high school. All of my Sunday school classmates attended then Iowa Mennonite School. Um, to my undergraduate work at Drake University, I chose it over Goshen College, um, and it kind of changed the trajectory of my life. And then the formative years here, that one formative year in Jamaica, the formation of being an administrator. So formation is a theme. The other theme uh, is, is the reality of cont context, contextualization. In recent years, and, and continuing to this date, I uh, struggle with the role of power and privilege as an older Caucasian Mennonite male with the surname Yoder. There's power there, and I'm, I'm learning what that's about. I look forward to the next phase of life, and here um, I, I'm quoting First Jenkins, uh, pastoral counseling class, what, three years ago? I think it was three years ago. In that class, we practice counseling with each other. And uh, one class session, I agreed to be the counselee and first volunteered to be the counselor. And the agenda I brought to the counseling session was, what will I do when I retire from teaching? It was a um, delightful session. I think you would agree first. We, we had a really good time and the other students watching. And I remember you first as the counselor saying at one point, I can't imagine you not in the seminary. That was kind of your opening comment about that. But eventually as you counseled me, you moved around to this statement, you need to figure out who Lonnie Yoder is in the world. Lonnie Yoder in the world. So that's the phase of life I'm moving into now. Um, I will be close by. Uh, my commute for 30 years has been 350 steps from our front door to the seminary building here. Um, and we're not planning to go anywhere far. We are, Teresa and I are moving down one level in our house and uh, Shannon and Brandon and their family will purchase our house and live in the, in, in the main part of the house. So still will be close by. So I conclude by saying thank you. Thank you for the opportunity and the privilege to journey together this past three decades.
Lots of hands going up. Lonnie, first of all, I just want to thank you for allowing me to weave my life and memories in with yours since 1991. And it's still fascinating to me that your great-great-great-great-grandfather and my great-great-great-great-grandfather came across that ocean in 1746 on the Francis and Elizabeth. So they were shipmates. So it's been fun to be weaving this time of our lives together after generations. Um, yeah, thank you for saving my life and also encouraging me on many times in many crises. Now I have someone behind you whose hand was immediately up. I am Shannon Roth. I'm Lonnie's oldest daughter. Um, I want to start by saying thank you to both my father and my mother uh, for all that they've done to instill a love of God and a love of others in my sister and I. Uh, we were always free to ask questions about faith and about religion, and I think that benefited both of us and steered us both into careers of service later in our lives. I want to thank the seminary, which, uh, as Dad made reference to, is Nicole and I's home away from home uh, for much of our growing up years. Um, oftentimes, I would be asked, uh, are you Nate's daughter or Lonnie's daughter, as there were two Yoder professors at the time. Um, and I was also often told, oh, you're that daughter, because my dad liked to use Nicole and I in stories throughout his teaching. So I am now getting revenge as a teacher myself, getting to use stories about my father as well. Uh, I also credit my love for teaching to this building in this place. We would come here after school, and I would go into an empty classroom and be the teacher, and my poor sister had to be the student. Um, it taught me great uh, chalkmanship, but by the time I started teaching, chalk was no longer being used, which was kind of sad. Um, the year in Jamaica, I'm also incredibly grateful to the seminary and to my father for that experience. In fact, I am doing two chapels this week at the other EMS down the hill on that experience and how it formed me as a person. So I want to second what my father said and was very grateful for that. Uh, I have to tell a funny story on my poor father. So probably one of my favorite memories here at the seminary was when I had a friend who came home for a sleepover on the bus with me one day, and dad was not done teaching class yet. This was early in technology and the internet, and my friend was like, I have American Girl dolls, and we need to go online to uh, look up this website. So my friend and I in dad's office, while he's busy teaching a class, look up www.americangirls.com. Not a good idea. As you can expect, the uh, improper website came up, and then his computer froze with this, these images on the screen. And I will never forget the panic look of my father when he came back from class. And this was what was on his computer screen. And there were two elementary school girls just being like, I'm so sorry, we didn't mean to do this. And him going, what if the technology department sees this and checks what's going on? He's like, you'll tell him it wasn't me. And we were like, yes, yes, we promise. We could never get rid of it. We eventually had to unplug the computer from the wall because it wouldn't go away, but oh, God bless my father, and hopefully uh, he, did you forget about that, or did you, okay, yeah, you still remember that, that's what I thought. 
So blessings, Dad, as you move on. I'm very excited. Uh, I am now starting to teach Bible down at Eastern Mennonite School, and you would not believe the theological questions that seventh graders ask. And so I am very excited that my father will now be retiring to be my phone-a-friend uh, expert when it comes to all things theology. But thank you, Dad. Thank you also for growing two amazingly strong, confident, God-loving daughters. Um, I'm very grateful to all that you've provided us, and I disagree that you uh, didn't put enough time into family. I feel very blessed to have you. So congratulations and enjoy retirement. Thank you. We have time for a couple more responses. Alani, I want to thank you as well for your time here at EMS. Uh, you came uh, some years after I came, and our experiences were obviously very different since I was in a home community when I started teaching here, and you, as you described, were in a very new place. But I am very grateful to have had you as a colleague for all those many, many years. Um, Intriguingly, for the rest of you, um, we learned to know each other, Lonnie and I, when we were in seminary. We were in seminary together in Elkhart years before, many years before. And we were also in a small group together for many years at Community Mennonite Church. So I've had many different opportunities um, to collaborate and cooperate uh, with you, Lonnie, here at EMS and elsewhere. And I simply want to thank you for the gift. And I think the word that I would put in there is the gift of your integrity. Uh, it shines through everywhere and all the time. And I want to thank you for that. A quick story about Dorothy Jean. So when I came to interview, I was pretty anxious because I had been for seven years in a, in a state university context where pretty free to say what I wanted to say, uh, write what I wanted to write. And I was a little bit concerned because at the time there, there was a considerable theological ferment in the Mennonite church uh, and there particularly some conservative responses and concerns being expressed. And I remember Ask, uh, saying to, asking Dorothy Jean, is it safe for me to come and teach at Eastern Mennonite Seminary? You remember your answer? Your answer was, George Brunk is the dean, and he casts a long protective shadow over us as faculty. Wonderful. I would also indicate to you who are out there, send an email with some of these things that you're thinking. And, I recognize our time is short and we might have to uh, give some time back to Kenton here as we go, but uh, continue to offer uh, those memories. And I know you have a good memory, so you'll remember the rememberies. You going up there? Okay. So Lonnie, on behalf of all of us, I want to offer you the blessing of God, uh, our source, our Redeemer, 
the spirit that protects us, and I share these words that I think may accompany you on your journey from Hildegard of Bingham as she speaks back to God. I, God, am in your midst. Whoever knows me can never fall, not in the heights, nor in the depths, nor in the breadths, for I am love, which the vast expanses of evil can never still. Blessings. Thank you so much, Lonnie. If I learned anything, well, I learned a lot of things, but the most important one might be if I ever want to say no to something to not tell Michael King. So, <laughs> so we come now to time to honor Kenton, and I do just want to put us all at ease about time. Uh, in the year of COVID, time has meant nothing or a lot of things, but Kevin reminds me that if we weren't having COVID, we'd be having a wonderful meal out here following the worship time, and we'd take an hour or more to tell our stories, so we are just going to take the time uh, that we want to take to honor Kenton, who has poured so many years of his life into this place. So let me just say a word about where we're headed now in this half of the program. Again, Dean Sue Cockley will offer an introduction, and Kenton's wife, Rhoda, will read the scripture for us that Kenton has chosen. Kenton's reflection is entitled, Becoming Rooted and Grounded. This is followed by a very meaningful song that he has chosen. And again, we'll have a time of sharing some memories as well. You can email memories. And then um, campus pastor Kevin Clark will lead us in a blessing for Kenton. So, Sue. I'm happy I get to introduce Dr. Kevin Durstein to you as well, Kenton Durstein to you as well. Kenton has been here at EMS since 2000 when he came to develop a, a very unusual program, a seminary-based clinical pastoral education program that has grown and uh, expanded, become well-known, and benefited and blessed many people at EMU and also at our community. If you've had a unit of CPE, I don't think I need to tell you what a, a rigorous, challenging, and rewarding form of education this is. It, it sounds to me, when I hear people describe it like, like formation on steroids, that uh, I can't imagine a more wise and gentle and compassionate leader through this journey than Kenton. Kenton has achieved the highest level of ACPE certification and has spent years mentoring others, forming other leaders in this field, including Penny Driediger, who will, who, uh, will be, be play, taking over his role as director of CPE at EMU, and we're really lucky to have her here with us. Kenton is an ordained minister in MCUSA. He has uh, spoken at conferences around the country, and he also shares his honey with us, too. Somebody's going to mention honey, so I'll just introduce the whole idea here. <laughs> Kenton, help me welcome Kenton.
Good morning. So the scripture we will begin with is from Ephesians, Ephesians 14 to 19. <clears throat> For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth takes its name. I pray that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant, grant that you may be strengthened in your inner being with power through his spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith as you are being rooted and grounded in love. I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. To the Philippians, Paul wrote, And it is my prayer that your love may be more and more rich in knowledge and all manner of insight. And I get two things from this verse. First, that one's capacity to love is the result of a process. It requires learning. Secondly, this learning is built upon knowledge and all manner of insight. Apparently, the Philippians had demonstrated good and positive intentions, but were deficient in the knowledge and the insight that would allow their apparently, I'll take my mask off, apparently good intentions to actually be helpful and actually be loving. No doubt each of us can imagine examples where we have functioned with and been the recipient of well-intentioned words and actions that were not so helpful or even experienced as loving. And to the Ephesians now in this passage just read, he prays for them that they may have the power to comprehend what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Now, I, didn't, I haven't examined all the differences or the nuances of the, the nature of love, whether height, depth, and all that. I just think he's trying to say, this is important, that this is a complex business and it's not easily learned. In CPE, um, we have just, I've been just constantly challenged and blessed by the challenges that students run into with so many situations, um, just in, of what it means, what it means to love and how do you, and how do you appreciate the complexity of some of these situations and how easily it is to be superficial. Just a slight example, I just in this 
a Sudanese Muslim woman grieving the sudden death of her husband sits in the waiting room. awaiting the arrival of family and friends and the chaplain in turn engages. Or an aging pastor struggling to trust God's grace and forgiveness as he approaches death. An aging woman living with the distress of her aging husband committing suicide is purportedly an act of mercy for her. A young man struggling, an immigrant um, young man struggling with the question of where his father is, whether he's even alive, whether he's in their original country, or whether he's alive or not, and hadn't, even in his 30th year, hadn't ever asked his mother where. Uh, he was. He had the courage to do so and discovered that he was alive and living in the country, but not yet courageous enough or decide to reach out to him. The learning process of CPE is oft characterized an action reflection action process, each effort embodying just a bit more of a deeper comprehension of what is helpful, inch by inch, forward by forward, a little better, a little more clear. Willard Swartley, one of my professors at AMBS, offered a theological frame to this evolving process with the concept of the hermeneutic of discipleship, which I've mentioned at various times. I understand what he meant by this was that we are afforded deepening insight into the mysteries of this love and into our formation as we are faithful to the insight that we've been given in the moment. So when faithful to the insight we have, we are given more. A student once gave me a pin that was intended to refer to the learning process, reflective listening in particular, the button said, why yes, it is rocket science. Or another one that says, yes, it is brain surgery. And I think that until we appreciate the challenge and the potential of developing our capacity for relationship, for love, we diminish the challenge and the opportunity of, of ministry. As I've approached retirement, I've taken to looking back over these 21 years and the 10 years in CPE prior to EMS with a sense of wonderment. How is it that I became a member of the faculty at EMS? How is it that I would serve as a resource to those who would be discerning their calling in ministry? Lead an educational process that invites becoming increasingly rooted and grounded in a ministry that is rich in knowledge and all manner of insight. What kind of arrogance?
guess that's my uh, addendum. What, what kind of does it take to uh, purport to lead a process like that? Um, and I was a senior here uh, at this, and I never imagined, I just thought, when I looked at the seminary building that was here at least, and the people that, I just thought, I never imagined that I would be, go to this seminary or ever teach here. Just thought they were some old fogies that I would never even think of associating with. Um, and I don't think any of my friends uh, imagined that I would be on the faculty here someday. So I have reflected on the people and experiences that seem to have left the deepest mark on me. Um, I, I focus most of my reflections uh, on how in the world I ever arrived here. Lonnie focused most of his reflections on since he arrived. So it's good that we're balancing this out. So anyway, uh, I've reflected on what, how, what all, what, what the collage of experiences that seem together to indicate God's presence in this calling. This has not always been easy for me to see. Frederick Beekner suggests that God's words to us are always veiled, subtle, cryptic, so that it is left to us to delve their meaning. To delve with all the with all the faith and imagination we can muster. This effort allows us to see our history as sacred history. Well, I was born the 11th. Surprise, surprise, I go to my family. <laughs> Some of you may recognize this. But I was born the 11th of 12 children to Abram D. Durstein and Ruth L. Moyer. Our life as a family revolved around the seasonal work on the farm in Souderton Mennonite Church, Franconia Mennonite School, as it was named then when I went there, and then Christopher Dock Mennonite School. My grandfather had been a pastor, as was my uncle. Um, on my father's side, and then my, on my mother's side, at least two of my aunts had married pastors, uh, pastoring wasn't open to women at that time. My dad was an unordained leader in our local congregation as long as I could remember lived with the awareness that farming for him was tent making. The business of the church seemed central to his concerns. While it has while it was a burden at times, I'm grateful to have been born into a family in which issues of faith and community were central concerns. Certainly there was a shadowed side to this and has been challenging for me and many of my siblings to figure out our calling in life without an awareness of a higher calling than many seem to live with. Certain experiences stand out and others are mysterious because I remember them perhaps only. I recall accompanying my father on a hospital visit to, uh, of our pastor who was hospitalized, I think when I was 10 years old. Isn't that interesting that I remember that so distinctly? Uh, 
Um, without explanation, uh, one Sunday I was invited to join our pastor's family for lunch when they were hosting the visiting speaker, washing feet with one of the pastors as a team. Sensing the gentle integrity of Merle Moyer, a Sunday school teacher during one of my teen years. Together they were elements of a life that was being rooted and grounded through these incarnations of God's love in ways that I couldn't see then. I graduated high school in 1968, the year that Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy were shot. I had grown up reading the Time magazine. We didn't have TV. Um, so I was very tuned into the news world uh, from grade school onward. I recall the encampment of the Poor People's Campaign on the mall in DC on a senior class trip. I entered EMC and declared as a history major. It was the time of the Vietnam War and joined many of a trip uh, to protest uh, the war and other events in DC and on campus. And uh, one time I was sitting in Spanish class and the assistant to the president knocked on the door and requested that I come to the president's office where I was uh, challenge not to go forward with other students on a particular protest or event that we were planning on campus. That's a footnote that I just put in there, but it came to mind. I read books such as The New Left and Christian Radicalism and caught a vision for a faith that could be relevant to address the issues of economic and racial injustice. Perhaps in that preserving my connection to faith and the church. Formative for me was the preaching of Richard Detweiler, pastor then of Souderton Mennonite Church, who later became president here who I would hear from when home for college for the summer. Despite my critical mindset of the home church, I heard his sermons as prophetic. And challenging. Uh, I didn't quite imagine that I would be as emotional as I am in doing this, but I that's just the way it is. Envisioning life in community, I worked with other students, including Rhoda, um, to establish the first household living experience for students. So five women and seven guys moved into the house, which was now owned by Lawrence Yoder, right at the end of Smith Avenue across Mount Clinton Pike. And we lived there with Richard and Joel Showalter and their toddler son. This became an experience of relational learning as well as faith development. I was impacted by the way Richard and Joel demonstrated a rare combination of faith animated by a 
what I experienced then as a rigorous intellectual seriousness and a sense of the active presence of God in their lives. It was during that year that I um, recommitted myself that I would live as a Christian within the church and determined uh, to find an experience of radical Christian community. Well, then came your term with Professor Al Kaim, my senior year at EMC. There we studied European history and along with Anabaptist history. While in Europe, I received word that I had been accepted in graduate school to study political science. However, in my reading, I had, while on that Euro term, I had run across the conviction of these early Anabaptists that the meaning of history lay more in the church than in political processes. I was also aware that Al Kaim, who I was, who was a mentor and who I had gone to seminary for a year before he did his PhD in history. Interesting. Well, without really knowing how I would use it, but clear that I was interested in the study, I entered seminary the following year. Uh, but completing a seminary degree was secondary to a shared desire between Rhoda and I, who had formed a relationship by that time, to live out a radical vision of the Christian faith characterized by communal living. I joined that fall, I think it was the, it was the fall of 1973, I joined Lonnie in the dorm at AMBS uh, for one month. In one month later, I departed for a wedding with Rhoda, and then we moved in an apartment not too far away. So we gave our life to the Fellowship of Hope Church located in a mostly African-American neighborhood, and so for the next 17 years, this church experience became alternately a greenhouse for personal relational formation and at times a stumbling block for the same. I suspended uh, uh, my seminary studies to engage life in that church community. And it wasn't until I graduated, and then I graduated 15 years later, still uncertain regarding my vocational calling. To gain clarity, I maxed out my curriculum in the arena of supervised ministry experiences. Uh, I did a preaching internship in my congregation, a supervised experience in ministry in, in neighborhood ministry. I did a summer internship at Doylestown Mennonite Church in Pennsylvania, and then an interim pastor at Hyde Park Mennonite Church for a, for a year, way out in Boise, Idaho. While in Boise, I took my first unit of CPE at the local medical center. I find it fascinating to reflect on all the ministry internships that I did to struggle and to figure out what in the world I was called to do and where I would fall and arrive in ministry. And, and so apparently, um, it was in some divine way equipping me to serve that same function for students struggling to find their way here and I was also struck in the reflection of in the two, 
how often I chose very intense relationship environments of these communities. And so like at the Fellowship, we had weekly, for some years we had morning devotions with a household and lived in a household for years and had weekly discernment and worship meetings and midweek meetings in addition to the Sunday worship and other meetings. And so by the time that I arrived at CPE, we saw small group education. I had logged thousands of hours in small group. <laughs> and there were some people in there that had never been in a small group. Isn't that interesting? I think I consider that experience as incredibly formational in a way that equipped me for CPE in a way that I couldn't have, I don't know that I came out of my family that equipped relationally for this work. Um, but along the way, I, it seemed like I was thrust into those situations that demanded that I, that I learn something about relationship. And uh, certainly connecting and my marriage to Rhoda is another resource of tremendous learning and uh, taught me so much. So my journey in CPE had begun there in Boise. It was the first unit of CPE that I got a whisper regarding my direction. My CPE educator suggested that someday I might consider training as a CPE educator. I still, to this day, don't know what exactly he saw in me to offer that suggestion. Nevertheless, subsequent to that year, I engaged a CPE residency, which is an intensive, it was at that time an intensive nine-month program. And that was a formative as well. I was the culture in which I grew up or the family, it was so important to know exactly God's will. And I was anxious and serious about knowing what in the world I should do. But Bob Personer, my educator, took me seriously, but didn't take my seriousness seriously. <laughs> and we did a lot of laughing together. And it was he that first introduced me to, to Beekner and the phrase, I don't know where I picked up the phrase, then or later, but what was important to me was that actually the phrase, the place God calls you is where your deep gladness and the world's hunger meet. That phrase became transformational for me because somehow it allowed me to value what, was, what gave me joy. Uh, once again, I was offered the suggestion that 
that becoming a certified CP educator was something I should consider. And I, at this point, I might say that the rest is history. And, but it was a challenge. Uh, the following year, I moved to Indianapolis. Rhoda and I moved with our three children. Um, and, um, and just uh, commenced then the, the, that, that experience and that continued uh, just expressing and deepening my own, I guess, rooting and groundedness and what it meant to love others through kind of a deeper wisdom in relationships. And I also want to recognize, just since arriving here, the incredible formational aspect of students. Um, so often provided me with direction and feedback, what was valuable in the learning experience. Beyond that, I'm so often amazed um, at the courage and capacity of so many students to reflect transparently on their growing edges, their uncertainties, their questions, struggling with patterns of behavior that they wish could be different. I've observed many times that when any of us can be confessional regarding our doubts and transparent regarding our struggles, it demonstrates the lived experience of grace and evidence of being rooted and grounded in a measure of God's love. Here I pick up the words of Frederick Beekner from The Sacred Journey. My interest in the past is not, I think, primarily nostalgic. I rejoice in much of it and marvel at those moments when, less by effort than by grace, it comes to life again with extraordinary power and immediacy. What quickens my pulse now is the stretch ahead rather than the one behind, and it is mainly for some clue to where I am going that I search through where I have been for some hint as to who I'm becoming or failing to become, that I delve into what I used to be. So, this is a kind of a beginning for me, and uh, it'll be interesting. I can imagine keeping my fingers in touch with CPE learning process that has been so gratifying and um, but also more flexible to uh, engage more time with family with grandchildren with other possibilities but I can only imagine that my hope is that I can continue to grow my theory is that we become for a lifetime and my commitment and hope is that I can become continue to becoming rooted and grounded in the experience of God's love.
we are sitting around the table now in extended time and conversation. So I invite those who are still here or those who wish to uh, speak a memory of what you know, and then we'll move to the blessing. There is one thing I want to do, Kenton. Simply wanted to invite our conversational partner into this time together, the Pinocrator, who we have engaged in conversation many times. <laughs> yes, you now have more time for that. He encouraged me in my pedagogy to bring the Pantocrator into class and just sit in quiet to see what would emerge within students and myself. Like when he would stand in the doorway of my office and say absolutely nothing until I couldn't stand it anymore and broke the silence. He was the icon for me. Well, I sense there are some, some gifts as well coming uh, that will speak some appreciation as well. But let me move to a moment of blessing for you. I did a process, I did, yeah. I did a process reflection with, with Penny before I finished, so I brought it down. So we simply ask the Spirit of Christ to bless you, Kenton, in gratefulness for your willingness to offer yourself to the faithfulness of God's love, for the gift of your humor born of an unsuming playfulness, for the gift of your passion for the students to discover their gifts, gifts for companioning others, and that that they may also live fully in their ministry call. For the deep mentoring wisdom that you offer in compassion, in ways that evoke others to their own discerning awareness in the moment. For the conversational pause, these might be action reflection moments, that you would then stop and then offer a smile and speak some poetic wisdom or spiritual paradigm into the lives of those who are in front of you. So, Ken, we pray that you discover that in this transition, a deeper knowing of God's presence, the gift of who Christ is in you as time shifts roles and calls to awareness new possibilities. May the poetic lines that form your nuanced thoughts provide an ongoing texture in the fullness of life. May the moments ahead with Rhoda, your children and grandchildren, always be Kairos moments. May you be kept and blessed in health and relationships. May you always give bees a chance. So let it be. Amen.
Thank you so much, Kenton. Kenton and Lonnie, I hope you know that all around the world, there are colleagues and students who have benefited so much from what you have poured into their lives. And one of the things about being here this long is many of them are long gone, so they're not here to talk to you today. But in your hearts, I hope you know the ripple effect of the seeds you have planted. We have collected just a few stories and memories, uh, and Marcy has worked at getting them into a book, and she's going to bring them now uh, for each of you. And we hope that you will enjoy some of the memories that are captured there. Um, Caleb and Sarah, I'm gonna flop the order of the benediction and the closing song. Uh, so as we move into our closure of this time, I wanna come back to how I started, uh, reminding us that this is our last chapel service in this space for this academic year. A little over a year ago, I distinctly remember when the word was coming down from on high that the campus was closing and we were ending chapel. And I said to people in this room where the chairs were all together and where you had been singing, I said, look around, look at one another, look at this window, look at this art, uh, capture it in your soul because we don't know how long it will be till we have chapel again. And I had no idea that we would have a year like this with chairs spaced out and usually no more than five people in the congregation and five people helping with music and running the technician. But 50 some people out there in virtual land. It is my hope and prayer that in the fall we're gonna fill this space with people and fill this space with singing. Um, but today I wanna thank three people that really made it possible for us to do what we did this year. And one is Clay Showalter who is uh, <clears throat> so, so gifted at what he does and made it possible for all you people out there in virtual land to join us, and I am grateful. And also, most of our services this year have been prayer. We didn't know what else to do in the middle of COVID, but pray. That was right and good. But I don't remember the prayers or the words. I remember the music. And uh, Perry Blosser, who's not here today, and Caleb Schrockhurst, who is on the cello, gifted us with what our souls needed in a hard year. So thank you, Caleb and Perry. <laughs> And I'm now gonna invite those of you who are able to stand because you've been seated for a long time. I want to share a benediction that comes from an, an, an Anglican blessing from New Zealand. I'm going, it's short, but I'm going to do it twice. Once with singular, you. Uh, take this blessing, receive it for what you need. The second time through, I'm going to say us. And I want us to hold our collective community the seminary that Kenton and Lonnie and so many of you have helped to shape, continue to shape, and any other community you want to hold, your family, our country, our world. So receive now this blessing. Christ be within you to keep you, beside you to guard you, before you to lead you, behind you to protect you beneath you to support you and above you to bless you. And now holding our communities, Christ be within us to keep us. Christ be beside us to guard us. Christ be behind us to protect us, beneath us 
to support us, Christ be above us, to bless us. Amen.